Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Well, if you'd open your Bibles to Malachi 3 and go to verse 13, we're going to read the text from verse 13 to verse 18 together. If you are new or you do not have a Bible, uh, you can also follow along on the screens on my right and on my left. So beginning in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say... How have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. Amen. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are naturally trusting people? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are naturally not very trusting people? A few more. I am not a naturally trusting person. <clears throat> I don't even trust myself, really. Like I set a bunch of alarms. Anybody do this? You've got like your alarm and then like two or three backup alarms. And then I make my wife also set her alarm. I'm so afraid that future me is going to be frustrated that present me wasn't responsible enough. I don't, like, I don't even trust myself. My wife, on the other hand, is incredibly trusting. If I'm up, when we were first married, I'd be up like late after her, and I'd come in, and I would see like in her last moments of being awake, she'll just drop her phone on my side of the bed, knowing that I would plug it in and charge it. She just trusted, she just trusted me, right? I think um, trusting each other as human beings Uh, feels very tangible. I know who I do and don't trust, and I usually know why I do or don't trust someone. I think trusting God can seem harder and less tangible. What we have in this passage today is an example of groups of people, some who chose to trust God and some who didn't, and we learn a lot about what it means to trust God. I think we learn how to trust God When we read this passage, how many of you want to trust God more? Most of you. A few of you feel like you're trusting God the appropriate amount. All right. Malachi is a book written to a people that had returned from exile. If you don't know, you have a story about Abraham, who God chooses. Abraham becomes a nation. What's the name of that nation eventually? 
Israel, and Israel is to be a priestly nation. They're going to display the goodness of God to all the other nations. And the other nations, as they witness Israel, they would come to worship the one true God as well. But Israel did not faithfully carry out that nation's vocation. And to be clear, that would have been true for any nation that God had chosen. They failed in a variety of ways. They suffered from grievous sin and idolatry and division, and eventually they're either destroyed or a portion of them who are living in the land of Israel are taken out of Israel into captivity, living now in a place ruled by people who don't worship the one true God, and they're there for 70 years. We call this the exile. And then after 70 years, God allows them to return to their land. And even though their temple was destroyed, they rebuilt it. The city walls were destroyed, and they rebuilt the walls. They reinstitute some of the elements of the priesthood. And there's a sense in which there are people living in a semi-restored state. Some things are going better than they were, but others are not. Their expectation was when they returned from exile, the Messiah would usher them in to a period of glory. And now they think back to the days of David as king and how great that was. And they realize that their expectations are not met in a variety of other ways. And the fact that their life and their world is not going the way that they had expected or desired has produced in the people all kinds of different sin. Has your dissatisfaction with your own life ever caused you to do bad things? That was what was happening with Israel. They were not behaving the way that God had called them to behave. They were not conducting themselves the way that God had called them to conduct themselves. And there's this series of back and forths that happens in Malachi, where God says to the people some sort of accusation. You have done this, and the people say, you need to prove that to us, God. And then God, because he knows everything, proves it to them. Malachi is a book of really, really harsh words, back and forth between God and his people. Very much real talk. And last week, Pastor Zach preached through the disputation that's right before this one. And we read it conclude uh, this way. We read, bring the full tithe, this is God speaking, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is a passage where God tells the Israelites, test me, test me, do what I say, and you'll see that I'm a just God, test me. And the Israelites, in this passage, when God says, test me, they say, actually, God, we've been watching the way things are. We've seen how things are unjust in our land. We've seen how we're not blessed, we're not famous, we're not powerful, we're obscure among the other nations, we don't have the glory we used to have. We've seen all that. The test has already run, God, and you failed the test. The Israelites are saying that to God. This is a passage where we see a collision between the truth the Bible teaches about the goodness and the power and the justice of God against the state of the world. Is the world right now the way it should be? I'll just give you a second to regroup.
Is the world right now the way that it should be? No, it's not the way that it should be. It's not the way that we uh, envision an ideal world. Should we still trust God? Should we still trust God? Are we sensitive to injustice? We are insensitive to injustice. That's a good thing. God made us that way. We are sensitive when things seem unfair or not just. We're sensitive broadly, like with larger injustices, societal ones. We're also super, super sensitive to individual injustices. We see injustice most clearly when it's against us, right? Here's a test that you can run. Um, Get two kids, preferably your own. Uh, If if you don't have two kids, you can borrow mine as long as you promise to keep them for like a day or two. You can have them. (laughs) Give them one candy bar and say to the one, I want you to divide this candy bar between you and the other kid, and then give the, that kid a butter knife. Not a steak knife, they're kids. Give them a butter knife. And right as the knife is about to hit the candy bar to divide it, say to the one who's doing the division, but the other kid gets to choose which half he gets. And then the first kid will run and get a ruler, right? They'll like measure it. You want to see justice carried out? Do that. There's a connection between our ability to trust God and our sensitivity to injustice. We see things in the world that are not well, either against us or against other people, and it causes us to not trust God. Like I read the words of the Israelites here, and I'm like, I can't believe they said that to God. They said, oh God, we tested you. You failed. You're clearly not just. And I think, how could they say things like that? But I know that my heart has in my life bent in that direction where I have a real or perceived injustice against me or against someone I love, and I'm like, God, why aren't you doing anything about it? I don't need a raise of hands, but who's been there? What does it mean to trust God? I want to give you like what I think it means to trust God, what I think the Bible teaches. Trusting God is the firm and solid commitment to the truth that God is good even when it does not seem like he is good. That God is righteous even when it does not seem like he is righteous. That God is powerful even when it does not seem like he is powerful. That God is just even when it does not seem like he is just. Uh, The Bible tells us over and over and over again in a huge variety of ways to trust God. How many of you have had someone in your life say to you, just trust God? Anybody? <laughs> I, I must confess uh, that there have been times in my life where I've been afraid to tell someone to trust God. Has anyone been there? Where someone's in a position in life and things are not going well, and I'm actually afraid to say, just trust God. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You're afraid it won't work out for them. You're afraid it sounds too cliche. It feels like sometimes contextually wrong, like a high five at a funeral, like high fives are good, but a funeral is maybe not the right context for high fives. I mean, I felt this way. And um, I know there are at least two reasons why that is an awful way for me to feel. One is this. The Bible very clearly tells me over and over and over again to trust God. And I believe that if God is trustworthy, when someone is in trouble, I should tell them to trust God. Let me just show you like a few places. Proverbs 3. 
Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own, what? Understanding. How about Isaiah? Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. One from 2 Corinthians. For we walk by what? (laughs) We walk by what? Faith and not by sight. The Bible over and over and over again says, trust God. I should be comfortable in all circumstances conveying to someone that truth that they should trust God. Here's the other reason why I know I should tell people to trust God. Because in the harder moments in my life, when someone whom I know means it tells me to trust God, it is food for my soul. My heart needs to hear it. I really do need to hear trust God. So in this passage, I think we get a picture of people who are trusting God and people who are not trusting God. And we learn four like dispositions or qualities or exercises or practices that empower us to live out lives that trust God more. The first is this, be humble. Simple, right? Be humble. Let me read um, 13 through 15 again. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. There's a pattern throughout Malachi where God says to his people, you have done this. And his people are like, who? Us? No, we would never do that. And God says, I've been listening. I've been listening to what you are saying. Does God hear everything? Yeah. He's like, I hear you when you talk about me. When I was a kid, uh, my mom had already uh, had a great deal of hearing loss. She couldn't hear very well. And um, I don't know if she had fully accepted that fact. So we could be in the car with her in the back seat, and she'd be in the front seat, and we could say whatever we wanted. Like just trash talk, fighting with each other, screaming. She could hear nothing six feet away. It was unbelievable. And then we would like kind of assume that's how things go, and we get in the car with one of our friend's moms, and we do our normal like trash talk, and we hear, what'd you say from the front? Like, we would forget, people who are four to six feet away from you can hear you, typically. It's so, it's so strange to me, it's so strange to me um, that we live our lives functionally as if God is not present with us, that he can't hear everything. Like, if you're going to talk bad about someone, you're kind of like, right? If you're like, I'm going to say something bad about God, check and see if he's there real quick. God is present with you. So just like as a side note, this is not particularly uh, salient to this passage. Just a side note, like um, when you are tempted to sin, because so much of disobedience and sin happens when you are alone, you should remember you are not alone. God hears everything you say and everything you think. He says to the people, I've been listening to what you've been saying to each other. You have used harsh words, some translations might say stout words, against me. You've been talking trash about me. 
Here's what they say. They say it is vain to serve the Lord. Let me go to the actual verse. Uh, it says, um, you have said it is vain to serve God. Vanity, not in the sense of someone caring only about their outward appearance. The word vain here means fruitless or producing nothing, worthless, completely unneeded, unnecessary. They're saying it doesn't benefit us anything to serve God. And they get more specific. They say, what is it? What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So first they say, we don't need to obey the things he has to say. Why keep his charge? We don't have to do the things that God tells us to do. And then they say, nor is it worth walking and mourning before the Lord. This is uh, like a rite of repentance. You have heard the story of Jonah? You have heard the story of Jonah? Wake up. You've heard the story of Jonah. Jonah goes into Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh. He tells the king the prophecy from the Lord. The king repents. And what does he do? He puts on the garb of mourning and sits in ashes. They're saying, we don't have to obey God's law. And also, we don't have to apologize for not obeying God's law. And then they provide their evidence. They say, we've seen what happens. We call the arrogant blessed. Evil people do evil things, and they escape. We've watched. We've watched. We've watched people be greedy and licentious and, and violent and, and idolatrous, and we've watched as their life has only gotten better and not worse. Have you ever been there? Like You're, you're thinking of a person right now. You're like, ooh. <laughs> saying, God, we already tested you. It's already clear to us that you're not just because there's people out there that are doing evil things and you are doing nothing about it. In fact, it looks like their life has only gotten better. We call the arrogant blessed. This is trading humility for arrogance. These are the words not of a humble people, but of an arrogant people. First of all, uh, presumed innocence. They don't say, we've been doing evil things and you haven't punished us. They say, those people have been doing evil things and you haven't punished them. So just to begin with, their presumption is that they're already innocent anyways. If you're new and you are not a believer or you're not very familiar with church or your understanding of Christianity uh, from the outside is relatively slim, one of the basic tenets of Christianity is that human beings across the board are not innocent. They're guilty. So already they're guilty. But more than that, what they're saying is, yeah, so we looked around. We saw the way things are for different people. We can do the math. We know who's good and who's bad and who deserves what. And after we've done our survey and crunched all the numbers, we've realized, God, that you have not been just. They're saying, we, we did all the math. We know. We know where justice needs to be had. And we know that you didn't carry out justice where it needed to be had. They believed they were better judges than God as for who needed reward and who needed punishment. There's probably no one here who believes in God to whom I could ask, are you better at God in anything? Like you might be an amazing, I don't know, mathematician. You're probably not better at math than God. Is that right? 
Like we, we like theoretically kind of in our minds know that there is an immense, really infinite gap between the greatness of God and us as people, but we do often live our lives in such a way that we believe we are better than God at justice, at goodness, at knowing the way the world should be. There's lots of psalms where the psalmist will cry out in anguish. He'll ask God why the world is the way it is. He'll tell God that his enemies are after him, that his life is in danger. But he's asking questions. He's not answering them. He doesn't presume to answer them. The psalmist knows who he is and he knows who God is. Uh, Have you ever been on a plane where there's really bad turbulence? Anybody? A few of you? Scary? When when turbulence happens, like, people, like, you know, buckle their seatbelts, they tighten them, they, like, put their arms around their kids. I was next to a lady one time who had a little prayer book, and she was praying really loudly. Like, it's scary. You know what I do when there's turbulence? I unbuckle, I walk to the front of the plane, I knock on the cockpit door, they let me in, and I have a word with the captain. (laughs) Super embarrassing to my wife. Do I really do that? No, of course not. I have nothing to offer to the captain. I don't know how to fly. I don't know what any of the instruments do. I don't know what causes turbulence. I don't know how fast planes go. I don't know how high they go. I don't know different models of planes. I don't know how many pilots there even need to be. I know nothing about that. Why don't I get up and go speak to the pilot? Because I know his place and I know my place. And I don't assume that in my place I know better than him. In fact, if I did do that, your assumption would be that I'm either a maniac or I have terminal arrogance, that I think so highly of myself as a guy who's never been to flight school that, Mike, I kind of intuit how the plane should be flied, so I should go in and have a chat with the pilot. Uh, Trusting God and being humble is very much about identity. Knowing who God actually is. Like, we hear the Israelites, and they say to God, yeah, you're doing nothing. We see you've got it backwards. The evil prosper, and the good suffer, and you're doing nothing. And it's easy for us to look at them and be like, yeah, those guys are dummies. They're talking to the creator of the world that way. But I know my heart can bend that way. I can think of times in my life where things either for me or for other people were not going the way that I thought was just or right, and my response to that was not to trust God, but to question him. Say, maybe I am smarter than God. Maybe I know better than God. The cure of arrogance is to exalt the name of God in your life, to better understand who he is and what he has done and what he is capable of, for him to become more powerful in your mind. Uh, trust requires humility. It requires me to know my place, that I'm just a little created human that doesn't know the future, that doesn't know the complexity of the world, that doesn't know what's hidden in everyone's heart, that doesn't know what's happened to everyone, that doesn't know what happens behind closed doors. God knows all of that. And in order to trust him, I have to become more humble. There's, there's a, a, a tool we use in church called a catechism. 
Um, and it is a question and answer tool designed to help us know more about what the Bible teaches. It's secondary to the Bible, but it's a helpful tool. If you want to use one, ask me so I can recommend a good one and not a bad one. Um, but there's a question in the Heidelberg Catechism about uh, how we understand providence. And, and here's what it says. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. In my life, when I try and consider the places that I'm not trusting God, the first part of my heart that I need to examine is the places where I'm arrogant, where I'm not humble, where I forget that everything I have is given to me by God, that nothing surprises God, that he's the creator of the universe. He spoke it into existence. He's holding the cells in my body together. Everything I have is given to me by the good fatherly hand of God. And so I want to rout out in my heart arrogance. Anybody here struggle with arrogance? Just me? A few of you. Some of you are very humble. It's good. Anybody the most humble? Uh, if you're in mini church, you're going to mini church this weekend, and if you're or this week, and if you're not, come talk to me and go to my mini church. Can I recruit from? Yeah, okay. Um, I want you to prepare for mini church by asking the question: What parts of my heart have not been humbled? Because that will tell you the places in your life that you do not trust God. So I'm seeing some people write it down. I'm seeing a lot of people not write it down. Be humble. First, be humble. Second, be obedient. Let me read verse 16 again. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention to them and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. We have this uh, uh, unique moment in, in, the, in the book of Malachi where we break from the back and forth of dialogue and we get a little bit of story. There are dissenters. So there's all these people who are mocking God, who are saying that he's no good, that it's not worth obeying him, that he blesses the wicked and he punishes the good. And then there's a group of people who have dissented from that view. They've chosen instead to fear the Lord. We read later to serve the Lord. They esteem his name. We don't know how many they are. We don't know how many of them used to be the people uh, talking trash about God. Uh, we don't know how recently they've come to their senses. We just know about a group of people who are not saying to God that it's not worth obeying him, but instead esteem his name and fear him. There's a lot to read about uh, what it means to fear the Lord. Have you ever heard the phrase fear the Lord before today? Many of you have, right? What does it mean to fear the Lord? I read different things. Some people are like, oh, it means dread and panic. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Seems a little much. And some people are like, it just means that you like him. And I'm like, that doesn't seem quite right either. I think uh, when I read the Bible and I read the passages about fearing the Lord, I think the best way to understand it uh, is a, a accurate and healthy assessment of the absolute power of God for or against you. 
that he really is great and he really is powerful. And so they esteem his name. Here's what's really important, I think, though. What we don't read is a group of people got together and they recrunched the numbers and they realized, actually, we didn't do the math the, first, the, math the, right, the right way the first time. God is just. They didn't do that. They're not from a different place. They're not from a different time. They're not from a different generation. They live in the same world with the same apparent injustices and they still fear the Lord and esteem his name. They choose, as we'll see later to serve him, to be obedient. Trust, trust will always lead to obedience. In fact, we might say that trust is not just a feeling, it is a display of obedience to God. The only way you can easily measure how much you trust God is by measuring how much you obey him. I want to give you like an example. Uh, I don't know, maybe like a year ago, maybe less, I got some sort of infection and had to go get antibiotics. Anybody else? You guys have done that, right? Okay. So I go like to the Walgreens pharmacy and the pharmacist comes out and she's like, hey, um, here's your antibiotics. And then there's that moment where they teach you how to take pills. You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, I think I got this. Taking some pills, right? She's like, drink lots of water and do not lay down for 30 minutes after you take these pills. And I'm like, thank you. I'm a fully grown man. I will take these pills however I want. No water right before bed. Taking lots of pills. So I wake up in the middle of the night. And it feels like I drink a, a hot mug of lava. Like, my throat is on fire. So I go, like, to the, like, urgent care the next morning. It hurts really bad. The guy's, like, concerned. They kind of figure out maybe I really damaged my throat because the pills, like, fell apart in my throat and really messed me up. He's like, yeah, I'm really sorry. You're going to have to get some medication to fix your throat. Where's your pharmacy? I'm like, uh-oh. It's a Walgreens. I'm a grown man, right? Fully grown. I have to walk back into this pharmacy, and she's there, you know? And I have to give her my, like, prescription, and she reads what it is, and she looks at me, and she's like, oh, you didn't listen to me. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This time, I trust you. And she's like, we'll see. Her data set was that I do not trust her because she gave me instructions and I did not follow them. Listen, uh, trusting God uh, is mutually exclusive. You, you cannot trust God well and disobey him. You can't. If our lives are marked by a repeated pattern of disobeying God, we cannot say we trust God. I hear people say, I trust God all the time. What they're talking about is a vague feeling of liking God. You can't trust God and continually and persistently disobey God. Disobeying God is not trusting God. Is the world complex? Do you know the future? No. God has given us a wealth of information about how to faithfully live out our lives. And one of the supreme ways that we express and display trust in him is by obeying him. 
Do we trust God when it comes to how we spend our money? Are we generous or are we misers? Are we greedy or are we not? Do we have bad business practices that take advantage of other people or are we integrous in the way we conduct business? If you trust God, you obey him in that category of your life even when it does not seem advantageous to you. Do we trust God when it comes to his plan and design for sexuality? Or not? Do we disobey when it gets in the way of what we want? I'm not really just like talking to you. I, I'm, I'm talking to myself. How often are you faced with an opportunity to either trust God or disobey him? And here's the thing. Most of you, it's not easy for other people to judge how much you trust God and how much you obey because so much disobedience is in private. People don't see it, but you can measure it. You know, you know right now whether or not you are someone who trusts God or not because you can ask the question, am I regularly obedient even when I don't feel like it or do I persistently disobey? Be humble, be obedient, be patient, be patient. In verse 17, we read the Lord say, uh, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. What I want us to see here is that God is now talking in the future tense. He doesn't say, I am going to spare them right now. He says, I will spare them. The people who he's talking to are living at uh, an in-between time in which the world is not the way that it should be and they need to wait for God to make it right. We're also in an in-between time. We live in between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Uh, Christian trust is a patient trust. It is a patient trust. It is a trust that waits on God. In the short term, that's true. There are people here who want things in their lives, who desire things, or they want things out of their lives, and they're patiently praying that God would come to their aid. And many people here have learned the virtue of being patient. More than that, though, on a horizon that far outpaces the duration of your life, Christians are called to be patient, to wait. To understand that what we most need and want is not yet given to us. Paul, Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians. It's long and there's a lot here, so bear with me. Uh, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I want to stop there. Paul is saying... The greatest fruition and wholeness of Christian blessing does not happen now. 
It happens at the end. From the very beginning, Christians were called to be patient. And our patience is a means by which we can trust God in the short term and in the long term. What your greatest hope is should be the resurrection of the dead at the end. It's good to pray for healing. It's good to pray for financial prosperity. It's good to pray for restored relationships. All those things are good to be prayed for. It is bad if any of those things are your ultimate hope. The last enemy to be defeated is what? Death. Do you believe death will be defeated? Every one of us is going to die. Do you believe death is going to be defeated? And you will be raised. If you're sitting here and you're new, or you're watching and you're new, and you're thinking, how could a normal person believe that? You should know, I believe it. I believe those who call in the name of Jesus will be raised. And that is such a powerful hope that there's nothing that could happen to me in this life that could rob me of it. That's powerful. It is not a burden to trust God. It is a gift. He calls us to be patient. Lastly, uh, be hopeful. Be hopeful. Verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. In the end, we believe that God is going to make things right. But our patience should be a hopeful patience. Is there anyone here who's ever afraid to hope? Yeah. Why? You don't want to be let down, right? You don't want to look back at you six months ago and be like, you stupid idiot. You hoped in something and you just hurt yourself because you hoped in it. You know what I'm talking about? I'm always hedging my bets. I'm always afraid to hope for good things because I don't want the desire for good things to attach itself to my heart and then get torn up a little bit when I don't get those things. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, it is easy to be afraid to hope. Is the world as it should be right now? No. I think one of the problems we have, ultimately the problem is, of course, sin, but one of the ways that manifests itself is in the world, often those who we believe are just don't have power, and often those we know who have power are not just. We all disagree on who those people are. <laughs> but there's this problem in which justice and power are never really combined in one good judge. But we have one. A day in which the one who is supremely just, who really knows all the data, who knows where injustices have happened, that one happens also to be the all-powerful one who can make everything right. I don't know how, and I don't know when, 
but I know it will happen. Paul says this in, in his letter to the Romans. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope what? does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Think about Paul and his life. He have an easy life? <laughs> he's like beaten nearly to death, thrown out of a city. They think he's dead. He gets up, walks back in. He's whipped. He's shipwrecked. He keeps getting on boats, and those boats keep crashing. Paul has all kinds of awful things happen to him. He certainly sees the inequities and injustices all around him, but none of those things are able to rob him of a bold and real and true hope in a future he knows will arrive eventually because it's in the hands of a perfect, good, and just God. I just want to say this. I want to say this. I know it is not always easy to hope. We're afraid to hope. We want to hedge our bets. We don't want to look stupid in the future. Church, Hope Chapel, you have permission to hope. To hope boldly, to hope audaciously, to hope certainly. Because God is good and God is just and he is going to make everything right. I want to say one more thing though. One more thing. Uh, it says at the beginning of this, this Romans passage, can I go back to it real quick? Romans 5.1. It says, um, Therefore, what? See that? Since we have been justified by faith. Do you remember a while back, I said a basic tenet of Christianity is that everyone is guilty. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we read in the Bible that the wages of sin is death. I kind of ended by saying, a bold hope, a bold hope. If you have not called on the name of Jesus, that hope is not yours. You actually don't have hope. You're actually in danger. At the end here, God says that he will spare those who serve them like a father spares a son. And there's a stark irony there because the way that he ultimately spares them and the way that he spares us is by not sparing his son. That Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place so that we don't have to. What I'm saying is this. If you're here or you're watching and you actually don't know Jesus, you actually haven't called on the name of Jesus, you actually haven't repented of sin, I want you to know that the only way you can be saved, the only way you can have hope, is through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
I want to provide an opportunity of response real briefly. Uh, I don't believe that raising your hand uh, saves you or standing up saves you. Uh, I believe the only thing that saves you is God granting you the gift of faith and repentance. He gives it to you. He convicts your heart. Um, but I do want to offer an opportunity for response. I think also the preaching of the word, the word of God, can convict hearts. So if there are people here right now this morning who uh, want to either come to faith or, or want to rededicate themselves, reaffirm their faith, um, just as a matter of response, while everyone else's head is bowed, I want you to raise your hand. You can pray with me. So if that's you, do it now. See your hand. See that hand? Pray this with me. Father, we thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are just. That you have sent your son to die for our sins. That we might be justified, made right with you. Pray that you enable me and empower me to trust you more every day. We pray these things in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.